Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome. It's Sunday night, and uh, we still gather, albeit online, 6.30. You'll notice something different. Uh, this morning, we were in Romans. I wanted to deal with that subject in the morning, and right now, we're going to be back in Philippians. Next Sunday, we'll finish Philippians next Sunday morning before we launch into a, a Christmas series for, for the season. So, tonight... Keeping Your Joy, The Heartfelt Theology of an Isolated Prisoner. This is part 21. Here's the title for tonight's teaching. What the power of God is for and what it should look like to those around us. What the power of God is for and what it should look like to those around us. The text I want to use is uh, Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. So get a Bible, let's study together. Philippians 4, 10 to 13, Paul writes and says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And in these words, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's a, it's a strange kind of a text. I mean, the only person Paul talks about in these four verses, really, is himself. The words I and me are just peppered throughout each sentence. The reason for that is found back in verse 9, right before the text we read tonight. Paul says in verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So the subject is the things they have learned, received, heard, and seen in me. So that's why in verses 10, 11, 12, 13, he talks about himself a great deal. He, he, he's been urging these Christians at Philippi in whatever difficulties they may be facing to rejoice in the Lord for four. And we know that they've been experiencing some kind of deep trial because of what Paul has already said in 129 and 30. Paul says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. 29, 30, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here I still have. So they're, they're going through a tough time. And yet Paul has been rejoicing in the middle of their persecution and trial. He's been arguing that they need to rejoice in the Lord always for four. They weren't to be anxious about anything for six. They were to have their hearts guarded by the peace of the gospel for seven. So Paul's, you're going through the same kind of trials. You're engaged in the same conflict, but still rejoice in the Lord always. Don't be anxious. You'll be guarded by the peace of God. This is the peace, the peace 
of having their security and their joy so anchored in God that they're protected from discouragement in the face of earthly trial and loss, and they're protected from idolatry in abundance and plenty and pleasure. That's how their hearts are guarded. So this is all the foundation under Paul's command that they're to rejoice in the Lord always. It's a pretty tall request. I mean, you can read it easily. We love the sound of the words. And because it's such a challenging request, that's why in the text we opened with, Paul wants them to see how this has worked in his own life. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, verse 10. I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content, 4.11. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound, 12. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, 13. I can do all things through him. This isn't bragging. Paul says, look at, look at the things you've seen and heard in me. And then he talks about those things. This is the only way, really, truth gets passed on from one generation to another. When I see truth on paper, I agree with it. When I see it fleshed out right in front of my eyes in some beautiful Christian's life, I don't just agree that it's true. I know that it works. That's what Paul's doing in this text. That's what he wants to emphasize. Remember, this letter would have been read aloud to the church at Philippi. And when you know that what you're writing is going to be read aloud, you, you put what you want remembered at the end. You save the last so that it'll be pondered. So before we pull out some of the details of this text, we need to catch the big picture. I mean, words like 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. They're, they're precious. They're beautiful. They aren't always easy to believe. I mean, they feel, they feel like they promise a little bit too much. They're confronting when we read them with our, you know, ordinary hearts and minds and kind of weak faith. But they're easier to embrace in faith when we can see them pouring out of the soul of a man like Paul when he's in prison and facing death. They're easier to believe when that man is more anxious to tell these Philippian Christians how his imprisonment had led to the conversion of Roman guards than just whining about the difficulties of his circumstances. When someone says that for himself to live is Christ and to die is gain, that his only concern, 120, is Christ be glorified in his body, whether by life or by death. So we can see, boy, this works for Paul. There it is. You can't argue with it. Christ must be present. No one can experience such contentment in the face of such trials. No one can be so loosely attached to material goods. No one can live like that all the time unless Christ is with him and Christ strengthens him. So that's what Paul is doing when he just refers to himself over and over again in those verses. How does it work? Let's, let's look at some of the points. Point number one. Paul rejoiced upon receiving the gifts of support 
that were sent from the Philippian church for his ministry through Epaphroditus. You can see this in 4.10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. There it is. You were indeed concerned but had no opportunity. And then Paul will explain a bit more detail in 4.18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable, pleasing to God. So remember, this is what birthed what we call Philippians. This is what birthed Paul's response which would have been taken back to the church at Philippi by Epaphroditus. He talks about that in 2.25. There's only one point I want to draw out of verse 10, and it isn't something you'd even think about maybe on the surface of things, but it does lead to an important spiritual principle of contentment in 11 and 12 and being able to do all things through the strengthening power of Christ, 13. Here's the strange thing in that 10th verse. Paul never actually thanks the congregation at Philippi. Did you notice that? I mean, the words thank you never occur anywhere in the passage. They've sent a gift. Epaphroditus brought it, brought it to Paul at Rome, brought an offering, financial gift to Paul. Paul mentions it, he talks about it, but he never actually says thank you. Why is that? I mean, is Paul just being rude? Is he just being forgetful? Or is there there something deeper going on in the text? And I think there is. The idea, I think, is Paul doesn't hold on to anything he received as his own. He explains the way his mind works in relation to their gift. He does it in verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. A fragrant offering. A sacrifice acceptable and, look, pleasing to God. So the people at Philippi had probably taken money, cash, whatever it is, out of their offering out of their wallets at some offering time, and they had obviously given substantially because he calls it a sacrifice in verse 18. Why had they done this? Why had they given this offering, sent it with Epaphroditus? Why had they given so sacrificially? Was it just because they loved Paul? Well, they did love him, to be sure. But I think they gave their gifts because they wanted, more than anything else, not to please Paul, but to please God, verse 18. So so they had a sense. They saw their calling to be pleasing to God, and they saw that call covering their wealth just as much as it covered every other aspect of their Christian life. So, So in short, they saw themselves as partners in the gospel with Paul. You see it in chapter 1, verses 3, 4, and 5. This is the way Paul talked about it. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always, in every prayer of mine, for you all, 
making my prayer with joy. Look, five, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now. So that's the motive for their giving. Okay. They wanted to be partners in the gospel. They saw it as their calling. That's why they gave. Now, what about Paul on the receiving end? Well, he says, 417, not that I seek the gift, but I seek, look, the fruit that increases to your credit. Now, you start to get a little clue as to why Paul never actually just says thank you to the Philippian church for the gift. He never saw the funds as his. It wasn't the money that pleased Paul. It was the fruit that would grow to their account. So Paul measured everything by its potential to produce kingdom fruit. I don't, I don't want to labor you with the text, but it's actually not the first time Paul talked about this. If you went back to Philippians 1, say around verse 9 through 14, He says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Look at verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So this is the way Paul related circumstances to life. This is why, very specifically, he said their gift caused him to rejoice in the Lord, verse 10. It's almost, it's almost as though Paul had forgotten how to rejoice merely in material wealth received or comfort or entertainment. Not that those things are wicked in themselves, but Paul had found those sources of joy to be kind of anemic and fickle and flimsy. He just connected all the earthly dots of his life back to Christ, the coming of his kingdom, and the call that rested on his life, just like it rests on yours and mine. So that's the first point. Paul rejoiced in the Lord at receiving the gift from the Christians in Philippi. There's something else here, point number two. Paul takes the time to justify the joy he feels in his heart for a reason. Look at 11 and 12 of chapter 4. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He he seems, Paul seems really insistent that they don't misunderstand. These Christians back in Philippi, they don't misunderstand his joy. I mean, in a way we wouldn't expect. It's, It's almost a bit of an arguing tone. 
Not that I'm speaking of being in need, 11. Not that I seek the gift, 17. When you say that like that, you're, it shows you're, you want to make sure there's no misunderstanding. I don't mean this. Don't think I mean that. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, 11. Not that I seek the gift, 17. He can't, he just can't let go of this. He doesn't want them to think he's dependent on them for his joy. He loves them dearly, but he, he takes 10 verses, 10, to make clear that he hasn't been sitting in prison wondering why nobody had been paying attention to him. But, and this is important, it's not pride that makes Paul talk like that. It's not that he thinks he's so strong he doesn't need anybody. It's not that he thinks he's invincible. It's not self-sufficiency that's talking. He doesn't want to give these dear saints back in Philippi the impression that the Lord is not sufficient for him while he's in prison. That's it. That's the whole point. He takes 10 verses to unfold that idea further. Three, what Paul had learned and how it gave him strength and joy in the Lord. Now we're coming to the nub of things. Look at 11 to 13 of chapter four. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. That's not it. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circ, any circumstance and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is not a denial of circumstances. When Paul says he had learned contentment in whatever situation, he means, he means there are all sorts of situations that come along. That's still true. When he says he knows how to be brought low, well, he means there are times when he experiences lowness. Maybe you're experiencing that right in the middle of all this COVID stuff. Low. When he says he's learned the secret of facing hunger and need, he means there are times when he experiences hunger and need. Just as he actually experienced at other times plenty and abundance. All I'm saying here, Paul knows how to bring good times and bad. It's not denial. It's not pretending. He, he's not just sort of meditating himself above the circumstances. So what's, what is Paul's approach to the varied circumstances of life? Well, fundamentally, he says he chose to learn something as he walked hand in hand with Jesus. Learned. It's those, it's those how words in verse 12 that seem so important, don't they? I mean, who links a how with wealth and abundance? Who links a how with poverty and lack? This, this is what he wanted that Philippian church to see in him and, and put into practice. It, verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And what Paul did and wanted them to see was that he, he had learned 
contentment in God. It's in verse 12. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned. I know how, I know how, I have learned. The secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So, so the fact that Paul calls the Philippians to mark his example, the things you have heard and seen in me, and the fact that he tells them to ponder it and take the trouble to copy it, it proves that it's not automatic that Christians will gain this wisdom. Here's what we know for sure. There are today far more Christians who know how to make lots of money than who know how to have lots of money. Those aren't the same thing. And knowing how to have money is far more important than knowing how to make money. In fact, Paul says there's there's a secret. That's the word he uses. There's a secret to knowing how to abound, 412. You have to learn that. There are lots of people who have been brought low by trying circumstances, 412. Maybe you've had a hard year. People have abused you in some way. You experienced trial, loss, maybe persecution. But there's a difference between merely experiencing sad things and learning how to be brought low. Doesn't happen overnight. It's not easy. But Paul says there's great joy in learning a sense of contentment in all kinds of circumstances. He he doesn't mean we aren't human beings with emotions attached to good and bad experiences. Of course we are. But he does mean that we can learn not to place too much joy in material gain and pleasure and experience too much gloom in despair and sorrow such that it robs us of our confidence in Christ. So this, this is exactly what Paul was commending to them. It's in 4, 4, and 5. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So, so what I see there is let the nearness and presence of the Lord regulate the rest of your life. You know how you put on green sunglasses and then everything you look at is green? View all of life through the nearness of Christ. Remember, he's at hand. It's true. Life comes in all flavors. But anchor your life enough in the Lord that you aren't overjoyed in pleasure or overgrieved in sorrow. So let all of life be flavored with what is most joyous, most unfading, and let, let people see this about you. Not that you're invincible, not that you're superhuman, but that Christ is that real. Okay, point number three, we're almost done. What the power of God is for. When you talk about the power of God, this verse has to come to mind. Philippians 4.13. This is a power of God verse. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The most obvious 
application of the power of God through my life, in my thinking usually, is his ability to deliver me from trial and pain and crisis. And there's no shortage of biblical precedent to prove that this is frequently the case. Children of Israel in battle. David and Goliath. Daniel in the lion's den. Peter in prison. I mean, the list is long. It's impressive. God is a saving, healing, delivering God. He manifests his awesome power on our behalf so many times. And if you want to preach on the delivering power of God, I'll stand and shout, Amen. Just don't use this text, 413. Because in this text, that's not at all what Paul is talking about. He is magnifying the power of God, but he's talking about a different application of the power of God to my circumstances. So, so the title of the teaching, what is the power of God for? It's an important question. Because if all God's power does is deliver and heal then all people will learn about him is that he is powerful. They may never learn that he's supremely desirable. But when they see me in my hour of desperate need, will they learn that he is still worthy of love and devotion and service when nothing else works? Will they see in me a hope, a delight in God that transcends earthly circumstances? Here's my closing conviction. I think, I think it's almost unfair to ask people just to take my word for the greatness of hope and joy that I have in Christ. Paul says they need proof. you and I can give better testimony to our maker and redeemer. It isn't easy. There's enough in life, very good, very bad, to distract us from the fact that the Lord is at hand, four or five. So the call is to never live one second of life in trial or in thrill as though God wasn't most on my mind and most in my heart. That's what the power of God is for. Well, Pastor Don, that's great. Lovely teaching. I don't think I can do that. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. That's the point of 413. That's the point of Paul's glorious promise about the power of God. You can, through the one who gives you strength, In fact, according to Paul, that's what his strength is for. He gives strength to the weak, the needy, frail creatures, people like me, to bring glory to himself. Remember, it was in Philippi that Paul and Silas were found in prison singing praises to God. I think he probably wanted this church and ours to remember that. It's a great text. One more. 
in Philippians next Sunday morning. Let's pray. Take these words from your word and just uh, sow them deeply in our hearts. We will need them every day of our lives. Oh, how we love your word. It is precious beyond all telling. Bless our church. Please keep your hand upon every one of us. Keep us safe in your care and above all, rejoicing in the Lord. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.